Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Chaloner, and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chinello Auer. Chinello is the owner of Good Cake Day, a bespoke cake studio based right here in London. Uh, Chinello, very warm welcome. Welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. It's a real pleasure having you take the time to join us um, as well. And the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. Now, considering that in 2020 business leaders of our generation are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I'm sure you'll agree, in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic. I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent this situation has affected you and your business in recent months, because I can imagine it has been a huge challenge. Yes, uh, thanks for the question. Um, I'm one of those people who COVID has actually been beneficial for my business. Um, so a, a lot of small businesses like myself and also larger businesses um, pivoted during COVID. It's one of the new buzzwords of um, the season. And I, I was one of them. So prior to COVID, I used to make, you know, cakes were my um, big ticket items and what I mostly sold. And I, you know, had these brownies that I used to post but I used to post about maybe two every two three weeks um and then COVID happened and suddenly people were you know not allowed to engage with their well to go out and see their loved ones and people needed a way to let their loved ones who were all over the country know that they were thinking of them um, even though they couldn't physically be there with them and my brownies in, that gets posted just happened to be one of the ways in which they could because our brownies come with a complimentary I call them blush cards mm. and they're handwritten you know personal messages so I would handwrite them and people would send me personal messages for their loved ones and it just became this brilliant um, brilliant tool I suppose or resource for people who wanted to let their loved ones know they were taking they were thinking mm-hmm. about them and so we just started to get a lot of orders for brownies and prior to COVID I only had one type of brownie because it really wasn't something that I put a lot of thought to. But when I saw an increase in orders for the brownies I expanded this to five different flavours. And um we got to Father's Day and I thought, okay, I'll set myself a target of selling um, 40 um, Father's Day some brownie hampers, as it were. And I didn't think we could hit it because, again, you know, I was selling two boxes, well, two tins of brownies every few weeks. We actually ended up selling 74. And that really was the beginning of um, a change for the business. And... I created a quarantine cake range. It was like really small cakes mm. that were suitable for, you know, people who were self-isolating, maybe two people in a home with a kid. And people started to buy those. And um, business had just for the 
grown since then. And then I did an online course um, because we I used to do cake decorating masterclasses where I would get people from, you know, cake decorators from all over the world would come to London and I would host them and then people would pay to learn from them. And I couldn't do any of that because, well, we were all locked down. Mm. And so I decided to do my own online course and um, that did um, pretty well as well. So I think mm. COVID, as challenging as it was mentally for me, um, there are days when I would, you know, sort of curl up in bed, cover my head and just kind of wish everything away. But um, when, I, when I was able to sort of get away from that and you know just try and adapt to the situation I found that it actually ended up being the best thing for my business because I now handed in my I used to have a full-time job before what was a part-time I used Mm. to work Mondays to Thursdays and off the back of COVID and being followed during COVID I then handed in my notice so I'm now doing this full-time so diversifying during the uh, the COVID-19 uh, period has really, really held you in a good stead, it seems, and taken the business down um, a whole new uh, path, hasn't it? So really positive stuff to, uh, to take away uh, from uh, that point of view, which is really good to hear. Um, when you are essentially in a leadership position, sort of managing crisis and overseeing that diversification, where is it that you tend to look to for sort of inspiration and direction, I suppose, and just that little bit of reassurance that, yes, I'm really doing the right thing here? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, it's a bit of a mix for me. So I follow, I follow quite a few, um, I find inspiration, inspiring accounts on Instagram so Holly Tucker um, is a hero of mine and I you know listen to her podcast and she interviews um, small businesses small business owners and she's really passionate about supporting small businesses so she was really um, inspiring resource especially in the thick of it when everyone was just trying to figure out what is going on and, and if we were actually going to survive it and um, so that was more for just the inspiration that I could keep going. Then um, another amazing um, lady on, well, I basically support everything that she does um, is Claire Mitchell, and she's more on the marketing side, but she has, you know, support groups, and she set up a support group on Facebook for small business owners that just really wasn't even anything to do with, you know, the stuff that she sells or the services she provides. It was just this place on Facebook for small businesses, again, with the fem- mostly female small business owners to just share, you know, and encourage each other. And that was really helpful. And also, she'd be also really available. She was also available to, you know, just answer questions and sort of bounce ideas off of. That was really helpful. But um, on a more personal um level it's just my family um Mm. it's really being able to get that encouragement from them that it was going to be okay even if none of us knew if it would or not just that sense of community and 
also for me, I, I, I tell this story so many times, but the very first person who ordered brownies from me was the reason I got out of bed mm. because she placed the order and then she came back to me and said, um, thank you. Thank you for helping me in this difficult time to let my boyfriend, her boyfriend is a doctor and he was right at the heart of everything that was going on. And she just said, thank you for helping me help him. And with her email, I realized that I wasn't just selling brownies or just selling cakes. I was actually helping people cope with a difficult situation and, um, you know, just get through this difficult time. But what I did was able to bring light in a dark situation. And that became the thing I held on to. It became my why, you know, because I think, um, not I think, when when the government first, you know, um, put into place the lockdown rules and they said, you know, that food food manufacturers were key workers and so we could keep working. Within the cake industry, there was a lot of, a, a lot of cake businesses basically closed their doors and went, oh, we're not going to do anything. And there was quite a lot of, um, there was a lot of cake businesses who were, not very pleased that some businesses were staying open and it became this um, atmosphere of, oh, I've shut down, why are you still operating? So it was really hard to know what to do um, without feeling guilty or bad and or selfish, really. Um, so just having a customer say, no, you're helping me that became, you know, I was able to drown everything else out and just go, what I'm doing matters. Um, I don't have the cure for COVID, but, you know, my business, I set it up to help make people feel special. That's literally what blush is about. It blushes, beautiful, loved, unique, special and human. And that has always been my driving mission to not just be a cake company, but to be a cake company that really was about the people that was that were receiving our products and no matter where you engaged with us or how you engage with us I always wanted people to leave their you know interaction with Good Cake Day feeling seen and feeling heard and feeling valued and special and that you know they mattered and COVID happened and with my brownies I was able to do that because like I said earlier with the personal handwritten note I mean I I am a huge fan of you know ink on paper I love writing um, and there's something about receiving something in the post that's not a bill <laughs> and that that really was how I was able to make decisions and you know, adapt and respond really to what was going on with a sense of purpose. Like I was doing mm. something good for people. 
And having reflected on the uh, the COVID period, I think it's only right that we also talk about the future of the business just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, Chinello. Um, we know that over the course of the next year, we're going to have to adjust to this new normal way of living and working until we do have hopefully a cure or a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. But hopefully um, during this time, the business will continue on its um road to success but what is it that you're really hoping to achieve in this next year and where do you see the business being in 12 months time i think my biggest ambition for the business is using our using our resources to make people feel special and um, especially now where I don't know, emotions are just really raw and a lot of people are feeling very vulnerable and um, and things are just the way they are. I think it's more important to just let people know that they are special. Um, and so what I tend to do is work on, you know, even from emails that I send, I, listen, I recently just changed it from, you know, the classic old newsletter to a blush letter um, and our products and really pushing um, for the blush cards and um, growing growing awareness of um, the blush mindset and what we do um, and developing more products and cake designs and um, brownies that do more than just make you I suppose have something nice in your mouth and and working on partnerships as well. So from as much as, yes, it's a business and it needs to grow from a financial point of view. And I am working on that and working on strategic partnerships to make Mm. sure that we are, we're future proofing. So for instance, Christmas is coming up and initially I was going to have Christmas hampers that, couldn't really be posted because of the way they were. But, you know, I've changed that and it's going to be nice gift boxes that you can just post anywhere in the country. Um, so there's, I'm future-proofing the business so that, you know, if we are in a second lockdown, if if we aren't in the second lockdown, it wouldn't really matter. People can still um, connect with one another with our products um, and making sure that the products in and of themselves are diverse enough to accommodate um, if it's a small Christmas gathering or a large Christmas gathering um, and not just being restrictive and having one big hamper that a family of four or five can't actually get through. Um, So I think for the next, how I'm planning for the future is by future-proofing the business with a focus on the customers and really making it about them and how people feel when they receive things from Good Cake Day. In terms of what I hope, where I hope it would be in 12 months, I would like us to be more well-known as a provider of modern buttercream cakes and indulgent brownies as well as our classes. And um, so that's more from a marketing point of view, just really working on building awareness of the business so that in 12 months' time, we are 
um, not necessarily household because I know it takes more than 12 months to become a household name, but just for there to be more awareness of who we are, what we do and what we're about and to be known for being a place where you feel special. You know, we're, it's, we're not just here for the money or we're just making cakes because cakes are nice. And I really, it's really important to me that we're known for being about people um, and how people feel when they engage with us. Um, I think if in 12 months time, more people know that about us or even the people who buy from us now, if in 12 months time, when they think of good cake, they think, oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're all about making us feel special. I think I would have, I would feel like I've achieved something really um, phenomenal if I can do that, you know, just really build on that reputation. Um, that would make me really happy. And I certainly wish you all the success in the world with that endeavour for sure, Chinello. And I actually think it would be wonderful to perhaps catch up in future and have you back on the programme at some point in the next few months, just to see how things are coming along in that respect for sure. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I would love that. Thank you so much. It would be a real pleasure for myself to welcome you back on the uh, the show in future. And most importantly, um, until we do touch base again, hopefully, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Will do, you too. I was speaking on today's show to Chinello Hour, the owner of Good Cake Day in London. Coming up next on the programme today, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition. Following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I relish the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and that is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. It's thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and... Goodness me, that's uh, nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I, I'm 
want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Pilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... It's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes... In life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. 
Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined 
moving from one to the other. Uh, how how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach. It's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to our who then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people make mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big, long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball 
above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a free ball play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. 
And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the two sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a big field player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just hitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players We're along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play was a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banks he was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that, A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially personally surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I felt it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, it, the American experiences were just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was. Uh, pregnant with our third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.